Walker Percy. He's really interested in the phenomenon of meaning, what makes things meaningful, what makes things meaningless. We're the only creatures that babble. We go through this lolling stage. We're just making noises. But somehow the noises, the sounds that we're making sort of catch on fire. They take flight and they become meaningful. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle, a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I'm joined by colleague and professor of communications, uh, Justin Bonanno. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Well, we're so glad to have you on our on our show today, and you've really dedicated a lot of your uh, scholarly life to studying not only communications and rhetoric, but specifically Walker Percy, mm-hmm. right? And I think many of our listeners and viewers may not know much about Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I hope today is that they'll get to know him a little bit and uh, maybe know why you uh, love him so much sure. and uh, why you find his insights uh, so uh, helpful. So maybe just to start with, you know, what is it about uh, Walker Percy? What does he kind of identify as the kind of peculiar, mm-hmm. you know, the peculiar problem in a way of our contemporary age? Mm-hmm. And how does he think that Christianity kind of uniquely addresses it? Sure. So first of all, thanks again for having me here. Uh, Percy, Percy, I wish more people knew about Walker Percy. Uh, most people who do know him know him as a novelist. But he also wrote uh, philosophy, philosophical essays. He wrote um a manuscript-length work uh, that was hitherto unpublished. It was released in 2019 called Symbol and Existence. And he was a philosopher who was very interested in symbols and signs. And it's important to understand, in order to understand Percy and his sort of importance for our historical moment, yeah. his, uh, his background. So he, was, he, uh, he came from the South. He was a, a, a Southerner. And he had a, a long history of tragedy in his family. So uh, his father had committed suicide, his grandfather had committed suicide, and his uh, mother, they some had speculated that she had also committed suicide. So when this happened, he went to go live with his uncle, his uncle Will, and he was kind of brushing shoulders with these literary giants in the South. Um, as he continued to grow up, he went to study medicine. He was studying to become a medical doctor, Yes. and he got uh, tuberculosis while uh, dissecting a cadaver. And as he was recovering in Saranac Lake, uh, New York, he began to read philosophy. Uh, he began to read Aquinas to debate with his friend, actually, because he wasn't a Catholic at the time. So he's like, might as well read, you know, Aquinas. And uh, after a period of time, he just gave up the practice of, of medicine, although he had a great appreciation for science. And he started to write novels and, and started to write philosophical essays. But the key problem of our time that I think he addresses is scientism. So the idea that, that science, uh, as we understand it today, sort of empirical verification is going to yield the only true knowledge. Yes. And yes. Um, 
he also, the flip side of scientism mm-hmm. is identity politics. Uh, so mm-hmm. this sort of ex- obsessive preoccupation with the self and one's individual sort of identity. And um, his way of looking at symbols is a way of looking at how symbols confer knowledge, a la science, and how we know the world through symbols, but also how if we're not careful or not attentive to the limits of symbols, we can begin to say, well, you know, um, I am this or I am that. And we begin to apply symbols to ourselves and give them a higher degree of reality than they actually deserve. So he gives people a sort of interpretive toolkit. He gives us a way of making sense of the appeal of scientism and also the appeal of uh, that you find a lot in these sort of pre- uh, preoccupations with individual identity. Yeah, and I, I'm reminded of, I think, one of his lines from, I guess it's in, uh, I think it's in Love and the Ruins, but he kind of has a little bit of an apocalyptic mm-hmm. American future in which the left and the right go to war with each other and just everything mm-hmm. kind of falls apart, but no one seems to care that much, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but he has at one point where he says, I think it's the widening gyre from Keats, uh, where he ends up saying something like, uh, the center did not hold... Mm-hmm but the GDP continued to rise, you know, and, and just this sense that we become so, because we're somehow, as he puts it, like we become right lost in the cosmos. One Mm -hmm. of his books, we become uh, like, there's something we live amidst the ruins Mm -hmm. of a culture Mm -hmm. and we kind of, therefore uh, like we fall into this. We only find identity through some kind of false, description mm-hmm. of language, mm-hmm. uh, as you put it, that, um, you know, that, that, that kind of loses touch with reality. Mm-hmm. So could you say a little bit more about what's, what mm-hmm. is his understanding of language um, and how does he think this kind of helps us to overcome maybe the isolation or mm-hmm. the collectivism that's so common today? Yeah, so it's a great question. The loss in the cosmos, uh, the, he has what's called the, the semiotic primer of the self, which is just this little sliver mm-hmm. in, the, in the middle of loss in the cosmos. And basically there's this funny little you know, preface to that section where he's like, you could skip this if you want. It's not important. But it's like the most important part of the book. Mm-hmm. And he actually alluded at one point in time, he said, if people remember me, you know, however many years in the future, it's probably going to be for this. And it's his understanding of how the sort of semiotic event or the linguistic event uh, is different from other types of phenomena in the cosmos. So, And just to kind of maybe for listeners mm-hmm. who, or, or for myself, so when you say the semiotic mm-hmm. event, the linguistic event as an event in the cosmos, uh, are you describing like the, the birth of language mm-hmm. that all of a sudden we, we have mm-hmm. now beings in the mm-hmm. cosmos that speak? Right. Words to one another and this this sense of the birth of language. So the example he always goes back to is the anecdote of Helen Keller, first learning language. And uh, she has her hand, her one hand under the water spigot and she's outside. And then she has Ann Sullivan in her other hand spelling out the word water. And she comes to the sudden realization after she does this a number of times that this liquid flowing over her hand is this thing over here, mm, there's, there's, yes. there's this relationship, but also identity between our words for things and the things themselves. 
And so unlike other uh, creatures that are sort of biologically adapted perhaps to respond to the environment, a la stimulus and response, this thing happens, then this mm -hmm. thing happens, we're oriented towards the world as knowers. We want to know what things are. Um, and this, this, he says, is unique to human beings as creatures that deal in signs and it's also something that you can observe uh, in everyday life with children, right? Small children as, as they're learning language. So I have a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and it's amazing watching them learn how to speak because when you read a book, oftentimes with my daughter, you know, it's a picture book. She's pointing at things. She's going, what is it? Yeah. What is it? Mm -hmm. What is it? And she mm -hmm. wants to know what the names of things are, but the names of things confer knowledge. They help us to know things. So we don't know the world directly as angels do. We, um, I think it's uh, Frederick Wilhelmsen who Percy draws upon. He says we kind of sidle up against existence and we sidle up against existence and we know it through symbols. Mm -hmm. The most common of which is the, the, the spoken word. It's the most economical symbol and human beings, uh, we're the only creatures that babble. We go through this lolling stage, right? We're just making noises. But somehow, it's this mysterious event, the, the noises, the sounds that we're making sort of catch on fire. They take flight and they become meaningful for wow, us. Wow, yeah. So he's really interested in, in the phenomenon of meaning, what makes things meaningful, what makes things meaningless? Uh, how did things lose their meaning? Yeah. And then you could begin to see how his sort of ideas about language, about symbols, can begin to play into a Christian apologetic. Yeah. And so what I understand in a little bit is, in a way, right, we say like a child sees a dog, a child mm -hmm. sees the environment, the child begins to distinguish among the environment. But when the child begins to label, mm -hmm. that's a dog, the child understands more about the dog mm -hmm. because now it begins to attach this broader frame of reference in a certain sense this accumulation of meaning and wisdom within words mm -hmm. that comes about by our ability to name the world around us and i think that what i also pick up on what you're saying is that Percy's doing this because he's fully aware that in a world of kind of scientism, mm -hmm. we tend to assume that anything that is not scientifically, empirically verifiable, that you can't measure on a scale and repeat in an experiment, is just mere relative relativism and subjectivism. Mm -hmm. right. So moral truths, ethical truths, religious mm -hmm. truths are mm -hmm. often seen within a contemporary view of scientism mm -hmm. as you know, that's your opinion, that's your opinion, mm -hmm. but largely they're not ultimately real. And so could you say just a little bit more to make sure that we really catch that? How is it that he thinks that this understanding of, say, symbol, sign, and language mm -hmm. uh, begins to right, break down mm -hmm. the kind of illusion of relativism? Yeah, so... Um so obviously science does tell us something about the world, right? That's something he's always at pains to do in his yes. critique of scientism is to save science. He was a medical doctor. He's like, if I'm sick, I'm not going to not take penicillin. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take penicillin, you know, if I have some sort of infection. But, and this is kind of where he follows the, uh, the Danish theologian and philosopher Sven Kierkegaard, 
who was critiquing I- the idealism at his time of his time is he says basically the scientists can understand everything can know everything in the cosmos except what it means to live and to die and to essentially be a human being <laughs> yes. so like mm-hmm. uh, you know what does it mean to be an individual in a predicament and ultimately what is the predicament that we're in well it's twofold first of all Everybody we know and love are going to die. So we're facing sort of our existential finitude. We're facing the end. We have to kind of like prepare for that. Or we can try and ignore it, right? But uh, and there are all sorts of ways of trying to divert ourselves. But there's also, um, as it pertains to the way that he, he is, is trying to talk about our predicament is our what he calls the semiotic existential predicament. I know that's a crazy... <laughs> so like, the semiotic <laughs> existential predicament. The semi- like supracalifragilisticexpialidocious. Exactly. exactly. No, no, <laughs> so the, uh, right, the, the semiotic, though, existential predicament, the semiotic, right, has to do with mm-hmm. signs and language, mm-hmm. right? So this yeah. predicament that we're in mm-hmm. of our own questioning, of our own trying to find meaning mm-hmm. and existence, right, is somehow shaped through language. Right. Well... Yeah, so it's um, everything is something, right? Everything has a name. Uh, And this is a a game I kind of play with my students, and some get really upset with Uh, me, and I kind mm -hmm. of have to qualify what I mean. But I say, can you tell me a thing that doesn't have a name? And they'll say, well, uh, well, what about the unknown? Well, what's it called? Well, it's the the unknown. Mm -hmm. Or what about the gaps? There's gaps in knowledge. There's things we haven't discovered yet. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the undiscovered. Those are the gaps, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, we have names even for the things that we don't know. Yeah. And so everything has a name. We perceive everything as something. Mm-hmm. But then the, the question, and this gets at the, the semiotic existential predicament, is okay. everything is something, but who or what am I? What's my Ooh. sort of name? Mm-hmm. So I have my own like personal mm. name and people, you know, it's, it's a funny phenomenon. I'll ask students this too. I'm like, do you ever Google yourself? You ever Google your name? Who exactly has your exact name? Why do you do that? Do other animals do that? Are you any different from other animals? Are they Googling themselves? Well, they don't have Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we're not just, you know, my proper name. And I can also think about my titles for myself, right? So I'm a father, I'm a teacher. Uh, I like to think that I'm a writer or a scholar. I'm a Catholic. I am this, I am that. But then there's ultimately something mysterious about our own personhood and the personhood of others. Hmm. And that's what he really wants us to be attentive to, yeah. is that particular that particularity, the existential particularity of others, the otherness of others. He wants to draw our attention to that. And there are very strategies that he tries yeah. to get us to mm-hmm. do that. And ultimately, God, the sort of the existential actuality of God, not the idea of God per se, but God in himself and our encounter with him. Yeah, so when we talk about that idea of we're, we're so used to kind of encountering things in the world and we're confident as moderns of the scientific ability to explore them, to master them, to know them. Uh, and yet, right, we have this question, who are we? Mm-hmm. Right, that uh, like, what am I? Who made me? These mm-hmm. are kind of these questions that are not obvious mm-hmm. right because we're somehow in ourselves discovering uh, there was a uh, Stephen Barr who's a Catholic physicist uh, at the University of Delaware who writes a lot on issues of theology and science will often say right that at least in his world he's a physicist but the physicists are so good and they've been good for so long at seeing what's in front of their eyes 
that they forget what's behind their eyes, mm. right? What is the I that mm-hmm. I am, mm-hmm. right? That I, and and so how do we, like, how, how does Percy say we begin to understand ourselves? Mm. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, he converts to the Catholic faith. He thinks, you know, what's 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 the how do we know, how do we understand what we're supposed to do or what our what our meaning in life here? Well, it's very simple. Uh, it's to know, love, and serve God. It's just right at the very beginning of the Catechism. Yes. It's like, but how do you convince people of that? How do you mm-hmm. get people to listen to that? Um, how do you yourself sort of be like, okay, I believe in this, but am I really knowing God? Am I really loving God? Am I really serving God? And um, that's where he sort of gets into his his sort of tactics and his strategies of trying to renew or refresh language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he draws upon Frederick Nietzsche, who talks about sort of languages wearing smooth like poker chips. Hmm. So like God and grace and love and sin, like these are all important words and they they express important concepts and uh, they're so important, right, to living a to living the spiritual life. But ultimately, they're so overused that they be kind of wear thin. They become cheapened or profane through overuse. Um, so, for example, he's like, love. What's the answer to all this? Well, love. But love is the way that, you know, sitcoms and soap operas are concluded all the time. Or, you know, the way that we talk about our food. It's like, oh, I love hamburgers, and I mm-hmm. love this, and yes. I love fishing, and I love my wife. It's like, well, what, is, what does the word sort of love mean? So, you know, following the psalmist, he says we need to sing a new song. That's what he's always trying to do with his novels, is he's trying to refresh or revivify language. And for him, the point of art, and he's an artist, he's, he's a novelist, he's also a philosopher, is to, in the words of the French, or I'm sorry, the, the Russian literary critic Viktor Sklovsky, is to make the stone stony again, uh, so that it appears again. Mm. It doesn't fall away from our awareness. So, you know, when you're, when you point out to a child, you know, that's a sparrow, that that's what it is. And then they go, oh, that's what it is. That's a sparrow. Right. But in time, as we grow up, we become accustomed to it. We go, that's just a sparrow. That's just a rock. That's just this. That's just a crucifix. That's just a church. That's just Mm. a priest, so on and so forth. So how do you, how do you shake people out of that sort of taken for grantedness? His whole thing was to basically, you know, he would shock, try and shock people. You know, if you've read mm-hmm. his novels, you know he's trying to shock people. One thing he's, he sort of constantly points out is uh, the way that catastrophe and trial actually, uh, the, the technical term he uses is defamiliarize or makes things strange. Mm-hmm. So we take things for granted, but then, you know, you have in one of Tolstoy's novels, the, the soldier wounded on the battlefield, like discovering his hand for the first time, you know, or when people are in some sort of mm-hmm. catastrophic situation, it becomes more real. The sort of, yeah. the uh, I can't help but use the philosophical term, the ontological significance, uh, mm-hmm. it becomes more real. Yeah, yeah. Right? I love that language of defamiliarization. It's interesting, uh, yeah, G.K. Chesterton in The Everlasting mm-hmm. Man at the beginning uh, describes that sense that kind of, he thinks of England especially, but you could kind of say the West is so familiar with Christianity that it just assumes that it mm-hmm. know what it, knows what it says mm-hmm. without ever actually thinking about it for more than five seconds, mm-hmm. right? It's already been, it's just the familiarity that breeds both contempt and ironically ignorance, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I think sometimes you can even think about this. Sometimes it's like 
Uh, I think people within a family uh, maybe sometimes you know feel less understood by fellow family members than all of a sudden a friend or mm-hmm. a romantic partner mm-hmm. who for the first time understands them and thinks like, oh, they're important. Mm-hmm. And so how do we kind of recover like when we recognize that we've become overly familiar with reality and overly mm-hmm. familiar with these claims of Christianity, are there any things that uh, – that you know, um, maybe that Percy or that you might suggest that we can do to defamiliarize ourselves and mm-hmm. to kind of reacquaint ourselves with wonder. It's interesting that uh, one of my mentors, Father Matthew Lamb, would often say, "If you want to understand what's the like natural light of the intellect, right? It's not just that children ask what is it, but you really begin to see when they start asking why, mm-hmm. why, Daddy, why, why, why is the sky blue, right? And it's mm-hmm. Not only do we want to know what something is, we want to know why is it because we mm-hmm. that's that that's that sense of that that desire to know mm-hmm. right that Aristotle would say at the um, you know beginning of metaphysics right all men by nature desire to know right right and yet of course we've often so beaten down that natural desire to mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Uh, so what are some maybe things from Percy or from yourself that we could do maybe to try to reawaken mm-hmm. that? desire. Yeah. So, so, uh, the one thing it's funny, uh, the way he talks about an indifference more subversive than hostility is actually the phrase that he uses to talk about the the sort Mm -hmm. of the dangers, the real dangers posed to Christianity today is a sort of indifference. The basic, the simple one, right. Is to read. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and it seems so basic, but you know, you're like George Washington. Yeah. Obviously he's the guy who crossed whatever river at whatever time, you know, he's got the wig on, he, whatever. Did he chop down a cherry tree? Who knows? Oh, that's Abe Lincoln, you know. And we have like this idea of who George Washington is. And then we read like a biography of George Washington mm-hmm. and it kind of makes that name strange for us. It kind of signifies again, right? We can begin to see, quote unquote, or perceive mm-hmm. this person uh, for who he actually was and not sort of this sort of calcified image of this, yeah. this person. So mm-hmm. The other thing is we have to be careful uh, with the effects of the educational apparatus is what he calls it. So the way, uh, of course, not here at Ave Maria, but the way that school typically proceeds, right, is it has this sort of like um, atmosphere of you're supposed to see this thing or that thing about whatever it is that we're investigating. So we're reading Shakespeare and like there's the official approach to Shakespeare and we're supposed mm-hmm. to get this out mm-hmm. of it. And then we take the test and we say, this yep. is what Shakespeare is saying. Yeah. Or like we dissect the, uh, the dogfish is the example that Percy uses. Um, and like the person is watching us dissect it. And it's, it's like, this is what I'm supposed to be seeing. And then I have to go regurgitate it on a test mm-hmm. for him. He's like, where's the best place to discover the dogfish or Shakespeare? Well, it's probably in the ruins. <laughs> you know, it's probably like mm-hmm. where that sort of educational atmosphere of you're supposed to be seeing something isn't there. And you can kind of see the thing mm-hmm. for what it is. And so like, what is the way of sort of recreating that? Well, you don't want to like necessarily induce a catastrophe or like go maroon yourself on an island so you can discover Shakespeare. Um but it's just an attentiveness, a sort of awareness yeah. to uh, when we're teaching and when we're learning, you know, the idea that I'm supposed to be learning, I'm drawing attention to the, the sort of learning environment versus the sort of phenomenon that's right before yeah, me. Yeah, Professor Michael Marsali, one of the founding professors in mathematics at Ave Maria University, would often uh, just say that, you know, don't let school get in the way of your education. Mm-hmm. That's and right. And I think it's like we, we, we have to kind of encounter the world. And I think you can... 
you know, again, certain other things you can sometimes, I think sometimes people also, even when they're encountering, say, the gospel or going through, it's like, it can also be that same thing. Instead of really discovering and being overwhelmed by the person of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and making a decision to follow him, it's more like, okay, wait a second, what's being taught and what am I supposed to know? What is the answer I can say that will please the people around me? And what am I supposed to feel? And I don't know, I don't even, you know, and it's like, this is that kind of, we're in that secondary level and Mm -hmm. we're not kind of in the primary. Mm -hmm. And of course we can't get to the primary without the secondary because we need to Mm -hmm. have other people that teach us and all these sorts of different Mm -hmm. things. But it is a different, I love, I think, I don't remember the name of the essay. You, I'm sure you would know it, but it's where he talks about going to the Grand Canyon. It might Mm -hmm. be the 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 mistake of the loss of the creature, but Mm -hmm. he says, the person who discovered the Grand Canyon was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. But he says now everyone, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you've already seen pictures of it. You've mm-hmm. already heard about it. So you already have a stock image in your head. And so you kind of then when you see it, you're like, huh, I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking it'd be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Or ah, this is actually better than I thought. But it's mm-hmm. like we're how do we re-encounter the world mm-hmm. in a in a certain sense? How do we recover wonder? Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely think you're right in some ways. Well, one thing would be to begin by doing things like mm-hmm. genuinely entering into reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me, uh, C.S. Lewis in uh, the Screwtape Letters at one time says, you know, of course, that book is written from the perspective of kind of the devils trying to tempt Christians away from Christianity. But he says at one time, the most dangerous thing you could have ever done is let him read a book he really enjoys, right? (laughs) It's okay if he's reading books merely to look fashionable, Mm -hmm. if he's merely trying to please other people. But the moment you start reading Mm -hmm. for genuine enjoyment Mm -hmm. and wonder, like that person's very close to God. So we got to be very careful. So let's go ahead and um, we'll take a break. And when we get back, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got interested Mm -hmm. in uh, studying Walker Percy. And I've always loved this one essay that he wrote called The Message in the Bottle. So um, it's actually one of his books right uh, here Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, by the same title. So I'd love to dive into that and think, what is it about that book that he thinks articulates uh, a question and an answer Mm-hmm. Right, that really makes Christianity re-understandable. Like mm-hmm. it becomes intelligible again, and we move out of that kind of right indifference, worse than contempt, but mm-hmm. now a kind of reacquaintance mm-hmm. with, with with the good news. For sure. Thank Sounds you. Good. You're listening to the Catholic Theology Show. Presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit AveMaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Marie University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by colleague uh, Justin Bonanno, professor of communications and scholar of Walker Percy. So again, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have a new book out, a scholarly book on uh, Walker Percy and the Crisis of Meaning, Communication in the Ruins. Mm-hmm. Um, before you say a word about that book, uh, I'd like just maybe you know tell us a little bit about how did you get you know, I think you were studying computer science and Spanish mm-hmm. as an undergraduate, and then you ended up getting right a master's and a doctorate in <laughs> rhetoric. So, right. 
Tell us a little bit about of your own personal journey to study. Sure. Yeah. So the um, uh, my intellectual journey. You know, I, I went to school. I went to the University of Mount Union, and it's only after the fact I realized I really got a tremendous education there. And uh, one thing that I studied while I was there was, of course, communication because it's very pragmatic. You know, why do I go to school? It's obviously just to get a job, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started taking Spanish courses because I was like, yeah, might as well. I like learning about language. And that, when I was taking Spanish, I started reading literature. So we read like Jorge Luis Borges, who's sort of like crazy Christopher Nolan of, you know, Argentinian mm-hmm. fiction. And I was like, well, might as well make that a major and so I got a computer science and a Spanish degree. When I graduated, I went uh, to work for my dad's company. I did marketing for a couple of years. And I learned so much about working, working with people. And as I was working there, I came across this book. I can't even tell you how, who, where it fell out of the sky, how it got in my lap. But uh, Lost in the Cosmos uh, by Walker Percy. And what's the subtitle of that? Um, the Last Self-Help Book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was saying something in that book that I thought was so true. He was making fun of self-help books, but in a way that was true and that was actually helpful. So he was like <laughs> mocking self-help, but helping helping you in the process, right? So I probably found that book when I was in an existential predicament, wondering what am I supposed to do with my life? And I read the book and I'm like, this is weird and hilarious and also kind of interesting. And I, the word that he kept using was semiotics. So I was like, well, I want to learn more about what this mysterious thing called semiotics is. So I was living in Pittsburgh at the time and I just typed in semiotics Pittsburgh. A faculty member's profile came up at uh, Duquesne University where I, I went to grad school. And I sent him an email. He forwarded my email to the, the chair of the master's program or PhD, can't remember at the time. Then I met with them and then I ended up, you know, the rest is kind of history. I ended up in that master's program. And the program at Duquesne was was actually really great because they were really attentive to issues of like scientism and how do we study communication without reducing it to like just a technique or a a skill um, or, you know, using quantitative methodology. And there's a place for that, right? Like people use quantitative uh, methods to study human beings. But it was just such a robust like just full, like, yes, this is what I was looking for. And it just seems so appropriate to our historical historical moment. And it really appealed to my like my inner desire to actually know, not to get a degree, degree mm. for a credential or for some other end, but like, no, I really care to know uh, what this thing is. So that's how I got into Walker Percy. Wow, that's a really, that's a, a great story. In mm. some ways, it's not unlike maybe it's different without the getting tuberculosis, but it's a little bit of like just, you <laughs> know, you you keep, um, but you know, you just keep looking for more, mm-hmm. right? And in some sense we need to, it is interesting. It's like we somewhat are kind of beings that are somehow oriented outward to somehow discover and know something. And we find ourselves most fully alive when we're knowing, when we're learning, when we're mm-hmm. falling in love, mm-hmm. right? When we're achieve all these different things and yet mm-hmm. if if that horizon is flattened mm-hmm. then it begins to become empty and so you know that sense of recovering that meaning now you know your book is uh, definitely a scholarly mm-hmm. book um, you call it right communication in the ruins mm-hmm. and you know you you go through a number of different understandings of uh, how Percy thinks that there's a kind of consciousness of ourselves. Mm-hmm that we've inherited from Descartes Mm -hmm. in modernity that is ultimately false and limiting. Uh, And then I love the way though, as you kind of go through it, you end up 
you know, you end up uh, getting to the point when the last two chapters, right, are truth and meaning. So mm-hmm. after we come up with a better notion of what does it mean to be aware of ourselves, mm-hmm. we get to truth. Mm-hmm. And then the last chapter, right, is on love and meaningfulness. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I just love the fact that you kind of follow in a way what you were talking about is that mm-hmm. it's only after we go through all this painstaking, hard, scholarly, philosophical work that we mm-hmm. can eventually <laughs> get back to what does it really mean then to find meaning and truth and love? Right. Uh, so maybe if you could just, you know, uh, for, you know, for readers, what's the, what's a short version of the, of, of what you do in the book and of what you, um, what, what at least it helped you to see and discover? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, no. Um, so, Essentially, the book starts off with a little anecdote that I think most people can uh, relate with. You know, you go into a store and you see somebody and you recognize them, but you don't know their name. And it <laughs> gives you a little bit of anxiety and you have, there's some sort of real existential feeling that comes along with this. And if it might be on the tip of your tongue. Uh, and then finally, you realize what their name is and it brings you joy. Um, and this happens all the time, right? When we forget things. Yeah. But the anecdote is supposed to draw the reader's attention to the fact that there is this intricate connection between naming the world and experiencing joy and wonder or experiencing Mm. anxiety. When we don't know the names for things, especially the names of ourselves, it can create a significant sense of anxiety. And so that's kind of how the book opens is, you know, when we know the world, it's not this abstract Cartesian disembodied encounter with a world of objects that we're sort of over against. We're in the world and especially in the world with people, you know? And so basically what it does is it, it's, as it starts off, it kind of tries to unpack these, these more philosophical terms that Percy uses. And before launching into the sort of second chapter and the sort of main part of the book, it's, it describes what Percy calls C1, C2, and C3 consciousness. So in Lost in the Cosmos, he has, uh, <laughs> he has this alien talking to an astronaut. And he always use, he uses other perspectives. This is one way of sort of defamiliarizing things or making yeah. them strange is to use the perspective of like an animal or like a horse or, a, or an alien in this particular case um, to reflect upon human nature and what it means to be human. And the alien is basically asking this astronaut, are you C1, C2, or C3? Basically, are you C1, which is Helen Keller discovering that water is water, the sort of primordial, almost Edenic state of Adam naming the world, right? Uh, which is full of wonder and, and names and we're discovery. Or are you C2, which is you've fallen into what he calls the pit of yourself. Uh, so the world has become sort of stripped of its wonder and uh you know, it's just objects and things that I'm over against. There's boredom, there's anxiety. And he draws a lot on sort of 20th century continental philosophy and existentialism to talk about this. But it's the fallen self, right? It's the, the, the sort of sinful self. And not just that, but uh, the sinful self that doesn't know uh, its predicament, doesn't know that there's something wrong, right? So if we experience boredom or anxiety or this sort of restlessness, Um, we begin to look for answers. Where do we go? Of course, we go to science to tell us who or what we are and who or what are we? Well, we're just very complex, clever animals. And we just need, we have very complex, we're more complex animals, but we have needs just like any other animal has needs. And we need to satisfy those, like Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the last one being self-actualization, right? So the third chapter of the book is about C2 consciousness. And then the third is, uh, this third stage of consciousness, he says, is you're in a predicament and you know it. 
and you realize that you need help mm -hmm. uh, in getting out of it. And ultimately, what is it that gets you out of, out of your predicament? Well, it's an apostle bearing news from across the seas, and not just that, but an apostle that comes with authority and the means for getting you home. Yeah. Uh, and what those means are the sacraments and the church. Mm -hmm. um, but he can't say that uh, because he's always trying to be indirect with his communication. So he uses the image of a castaway, so on and so forth. Uh -huh. And we could talk about yeah. that at, um, at a certain point. And then the book makes a turn into truth and sort of uh, love and the importance of truth and what truth is and how truth is related to to language, right? So uh, we need to be able to predicate things. Like if I say overcoat, that might be meaningful or have significance, but uncoupled to something like another word, it can't actually say whether it's true or false. So if I say God, it's like, what do you mean by God? Well, God is love. Okay, we mm -hmm. can say that's true or false. And then the, the last chapter is really on love. And another way of kind of making love uh, signify again, or sort of renewing that term, is to translate it. And so I, I use C.S. Lewis to kind of help translate love into uh, philia, storge, agape, and eros, because we think of love today just as a sort of bland, <laughs> amorphous mass, mm -hmm. but there are different types of loves, and, and that yeah. really is significant uh, if we're to have meaning in this world. That's to, to beautiful, and, and I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Lewis's book on the four loves, and I really think he is in that book trying to rehabilitate mm -hmm. kind of modern man's lack of sensibility that we lack in a way even really great human friendships or great human eros or mm -hmm. great human storge um and so if we don't even it's hard for even our human loves to be big enough to be rivals of divine love mm -hmm. right and so he anyway he he goes through that but it's also interesting the way you're describing that sense of anxiety and names you know, it's fascinating because in many ways, the Old Testament is really the revelation of the name of God. Mm -hmm. What is your name? Right? What is your name? Uh, uh, Israel asks this of God, of, or, or Jacob, who becomes Israel. Jacob asks this of God when he mm -hmm. is wrestling with him. Give me your name, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, that I may have your blessing. And Moses gets the name of God. And the temple in the Old Testament is that in which the name of God will dwell. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the Old Testament is really the people that know God's name. Mm -hmm. They know God's name and they know what they're to do. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, we see that that name is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom we come to know through Jesus Christ. So Acts 4.12, right? So it's, right, it's in Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven that is uh, our salvation. Right? Well, in a certain sense then, if we've rejected God's name and if we've rejected the name of God revealed in Jesus Christ, then we live in a way profoundly uncertain of who God is, of mm -hmm. what the universe is, mm -hmm. and in a way of who we are. And we've certainly lost any of the, you know, we've, we've, we've become somewhat lost, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it's not surprising in a way that we have a deep sense of anxiety and stress and kind of just are overwhelmed. Yeah. Right? As, as he puts it, we're lost in the cosmos. And the irony is we don't even know <laughs> we're that's lost. Right. That's right. Um, because we've convinced ourselves that we can't name God because there is no God, mm -hmm. right? Um, so anyway, it's really fascinating to see that. It's also reminded me, I was thinking of uh, this line from John. It says, when in the beginning was the word mm -hmm. and the word was with God and the word was God, that God mm -hmm. is fundamentally in a way, language, mm -hmm. speech, communication, mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. from all eternity.
Um, so let's uh, turn to this uh, famous essay, The Message in the Bottle. Mm-hmm. So would you just give us a brief kind of sure. uh, brief description of what's he describing mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how does he think it helps us to kind of, you know, to see ourselves and to see our situation better? Yeah, so um, essentially he's describing the difference between scientific knowledge and faith as a type of knowledge. And he okay. does think uh, faith mm-hmm. is a type of knowledge. And uh, again, he's at pains to talk about the merits of, of scientific knowledge, which he calls uh, knowledge, the technical, the Latin would be subspecie eternitatis, or the, lo- the knowledge that holds good and true for all times and all places. So water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's just going to hold good and true no matter where you're at. I mean, I guess if you're in Denver or whatnot, yeah, it might yeah. be a little bit different. But then there's knowledge that's news, rather, that is relative to your predicament. So if you're a castaway in a deserted island, um, it may or may not be helpful to know that water boils at a certain temperature. But it certainly is significant to your uh, predicament as a castaway if there is fresh water in the cove just on the other side of the island. So that, that knowledge or that news is relative to you as an individual, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's he's kind of making this distinction between scientific knowledge, uh, which is helpful, you know, uh, gravity is 9.8 yeah. meters per second mm-hmm. squared, so on and so forth, and knowledge that is like, here I am in a battle, and I get news that reinforcements are coming, or, you yeah. know, it's it speaks directly to me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I also think it's interesting when he describes that, he speaks about, right, the man who's uh, cast away on an island, but this is the one unique thing about him, right? Is he doesn't remember where he came from. Mm-hmm. He doesn't remember mm-hmm. that he's a castaway. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up and he finds it's an interesting island. They have some universities, some jobs, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He makes he's a sensible guy, willing to work. So he makes mm-hmm. a life of himself. He gets an education. He gets married. Mm-hmm. Has a little family, right? And then when he goes on the island, he sees on the beach. He walks. He sees these messages in the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. And they give the stuff and he begins to classify some as knowledge. They're mm-hmm. simply just statements of fact, but other ones are news. Um, so why does he use this image of a castaway who doesn't know he's a castaway? Yeah, so um, well, it's essentially it's us, right? So it's like, you know, we this is the, the earth is the island that we're on. And the news from across the seas is basically hold tight you're going to be saved or somebody is coming to help you. Somebody's coming to your assistance. And if we look at that, we make the sort of category mistake of going, this is knowledge under the aegis of eternity. We would go, well, it's empirically unverifiable. I can't see that. I can't Mm -hmm. empirically test that. Um, But, you know, as I would say to students sometimes, you know, if I were to run into the room and go, well, there's a fire outside or something like that. Of course, I'm not going to break yeah, the First yeah. Amendment or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they don't see it. They have to take my word for it. So there's this element of faith as a sort of trust mm-hmm. in a person and what they're telling you that you can't see, uh, that you have to take their word for it, right? And so who is the news bearer? It's the apostle, right? Percy said that it's, it's, it's funny that the person who had the most influence on me, a Catholic, is some Dutch Protestant, Søren Kierkegaard. Yeah. Uh, he said that Kierkegaard's on the difference between a genius and apostle was probably the most important 
for him uh, in terms of his Christianity, because uh, Kierkegaard makes a difference between the genius who has knowledge under the ages of eternity, who's saying something that's universal and true, versus the apostle who is saying something relative to your predicament. And the question is, mm-hmm. which one is bringing you more important news? Yeah. Uh, or telling you something more important. You know, with all due respect to St. Paul, Kierkegaard says, you know, and compared to Shakespeare and Plato, you know, what he says, it's not so much the aesthetic merits of what he's saying, but who the authority he comes with yeah. that is of significance. Yeah, and I think one thing that Kierkegaard also says in that uh, essay is that, like, the, what the genius comes to see, once the genius sees it, and shows it to us, we can all then kind of see it for ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So I can't see what Einstein said, but a lot of decent physicists who mm-hmm. are nowhere near as smart as Einstein can mm-hmm. see it and understand it now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with the apostle, we always you can't you you always remain in that I mm-hmm. I have to like you know you know the the, the promise is that this man whom right was crucified has risen again rose um, not only from the dead, but ascended unto heaven and will come again. Mm-hmm. And that God has put things right. That's right. right? And, and we remain in that same position. We either believe it or not, right? Um, and I think it's one thing that uh, Percy suggests then is ultimately we need more than messages in a bottle, right? He says we need somebody who delivers the That's message. Right. Yeah, who, and who comes and speaks with authority, you know, the, and, and why do we believe the apostle? Well, he comes with a sober demeanor, yeah. and, he, mm-hmm. uh, and he tells us this is the way it is, and he comes with authority. And not only that, he doesn't come just by himself, uh, and this is where he parts ways with uh, Kierkegaard, at least in one regard, mm-hmm. is he brings the means with him, right? So he brings mm-hmm. the sacraments, the, the means of uh, sort of journeying on the way. Percy's mm-hmm. understanding of the human person following the Catholic philosopher Gabriel Marcel is, Homo viator, man, the traveler, mm-hmm. man, the man on the way, sort of man mm-hmm. on a journey. And when you when you start to study his sort of understanding of language and communication, he's very weary of the fixity of of labels. So like fixing myself as this thing or that thing, because I'm always on my way. I'm always yeah. either moving mm-hmm. towards God or away from God. And uh, I tell students uh, when I teach Walker Percy, I get the chance to teach him in my interpersonal communication class. I teach Lost in the Cosmos. I say you can't fix yourself, and there's a double meaning to that. Mm. I mean, you can name yourself, which is a sort of fixing of yourself, um, but who knows, you know, whether or not I will be this thing or that thing in the future. And also at the more sacramental level and the level of grace, you know, you can't can't fix yourself. So he's just Percy is reminding us and trying us to trying to show us things about the importance of news as what he calls the most important category of yeah. communication. And I think he. You can correct me if I'm wrong. He also mentions one other item, which is that is there a kind of, um, I don't know, kind of resonance between the news and my deeper longings, right? Mm -hmm. Is there something where the man's happy on the island, but he's not not totally happy on the island. Mm -hmm. It's fun to have a job. It's mm-hmm. fun to have a family. It's fun to have a car, maybe, you know, a car and a mm-hmm. garage. But he asks himself, is there something more, mm-hmm. right? Maybe there's something more to my life than the life I have on the island. And if he thinks that, then the news that someone is coming to mm-hmm. rescue him is amazing, mm-hmm. right? That's and right. so there's this 
way in which, and I think we have to kind of, if people really look at it seriously, it is interesting how, I mean, in some ways this becomes an argument against Christianity is it so perfectly fulfills our Mm -hmm. deepest longings Mm -hmm. that we must have made it up. That's right. Or it's just some sort of projection. Yeah, exactly. But of course, what if it fulfills our deepest longings (laughs) because we were actually made not to live on this little island, but we were made Mm -hmm. uh, for a communion, right, with God. And so, right, the good news that we have that this man rose from the dead and will come back and Mm -hmm. defeat our enemies, Mm -hmm. defeat the enemies of death, right, defeat the enemies of sin, and restore us to communion with God is actually mm-hmm. like it, it somehow it fits, mm-hmm. right? You know, so could you say a little bit about that sense that so the, the trust in the authority of the apostle is not a blind trust. It's not a belief in the absurd, uh, but it actually is somehow it's, it's, it's wise. It, mm-hmm. it gives wisdom and it actually allows us ironically to understand the island even better than those on the island can understand mm-hmm. it. That's right. Yeah, you realize yourself, you realize that you are a castaway. You know, the way that he sort of paraphrases Kierkegaard, I think it's the opening epigraph to uh, the 1962 uh, book that he wrote, The Moviegoer, which is what he's usually known for, is the worst character, the, the character of despair is precisely this, not knowing that you're in despair. And oh, so it's the, it's the, mm-hmm. posture, the posture of the castaway to be receptive to the news is really important because otherwise, like as you're saying, you know, you just go along to get along, be a bump on the log. You don't even realize that you are a castaway and somebody can bring you something that there's this appetite that would actually satisfy uh, within you. So how do you stir people into an awareness that they mm-hmm. are a castaway? Well, for Walker Percy, you use literally every trick in the book that you possibly okay. can. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, observing uh, uh, moral and ethical uh, standards, he wants to attack the fake in the yeah. name of the real. All those who would presuppose to give the ultimate answer. Yeah. So for maybe, you know, if, if there's a listener who's interested in mm-hmm. learning a little bit more about Walker Percy, uh, we've talked about the essay, The Message in the Bottle. Mm-hmm. You've talked about the, which is in the book, The Message in the Bottle, but it's a mm-hmm. short like maybe 15 page essay. There's also, you said lost in the cosmos, Mm -hmm. which is a short section within the book Mm -hmm. lost in the cosmos is there's a, uh, he calls it the semiotic primer, which is more philosophical, but I would Mm -hmm. tell people start with lost in the cosmos. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, It's my favorite of Percy's books. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. It's still very apropos to today. The objects of his mockery and satire, the sort of self-help gurus, they're all still out there. They're yeah. all still doing really mm-hmm. well. It, you would have to kind of understand who's, you know, the Donahue show. He makes some yeah. references mm-hmm. that might be, you know, out of touch um, or people might not understand. And, of course, Percy, occasionally he'll say things that are a little bit explicit, so just fair warning to people. Mm-hmm. But it's so funny and it's so good. So Lost in the Cosmos is a great place to start. But then the message in the bottle. And the other one, uh, which people don't talk about as much, is Signposts in a Strange Land, uh, which, again, are collections of essays. There are book reviews in okay. that. But, yeah, he's he's. Uh, if you're looking for something more philosophical, not one of his okay. novels, definitely start there. Sounds good. And uh, I'd like to ask you three quick questions. Sure. Uh, what's a book you've been reading? <laughs> Earlier today, um, I was actually reading more Aquinas. I need to actually uh, – I want to get my philosophical chops uh, better. You know, I want to actually stand on solid ground. Percy was a Thomist. Yeah. The great 20th century 
Catholics who are talking about communication had that sort of Thomistic background, Marshall McLuhan, what have you. So this morning I was reading an excerpt on uh, Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle's on interpretation. So oh, excellent. Yeah. That's great. Um, and uh, what's a daily practice you do to uh, draw closer to God? So right now I'm doing the Bible in a year. It's part mm-hmm. of the Founder Scholarship uh, program here, reading the Bible with students. Uh, so I've been reading that, and um, I've been trying, typically after I read the Bible, I go through um, sort of Carmelite uh, method of, you know, reflecting on God's love for us, mm-hmm. and then making sort of resolutions, you know, this is what I want to do to grow in virtue, um, and to, to sort of demonstrate my love for God. So uh, those are the two things uh, right now, is just reading the Bible and then praying well, Thank you for sharing that. And uh, just last question, what's a belief you held about God that you discovered was false? And what was the <laughs> truth you discovered? <laughs> Um, hmm, I believe I, about God, well, I wasn't always a believer, uh, so I converted to Catholicism in 2014, I entered the church, I tried a lot of different, uh, things, I was, you know, was reading atheism, tried, went the Buddhism route, in fact, I was the guy, probably Walker Percy was making fun of, uh, <laughs> sort of <laughs> searching around the island, try, picking up different bottles and, you know, drinking whatever's in the bottle or following the instructions on this mm-hmm. or that bottle, um, but, you know, when people, when it comes down to brass tacks, you know, you can you can think about God intellectually, and there's I love, you know, thinking about God, but why do I why love God and why why believe that God is who He says He is? For me, uh, and I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day. He reveals Himself um, as in a father son relationship and a familial relationship, and that to me. Um, just thinking about my own father and the times that I have suffered in my life, feeling the closeness of God, which some people say, well, that's just, you know, it's just subjective. Mm-hmm. That to me is what has really strengthened my faith yeah. and made me want to believe is that presence of God, the real presence of God that is hard to articulate, it's hard to quantify, it's hard to empirically validate for others, but the real presence of God uh, in suffering uh, has meant the most to me. Wow. Well, uh, what a beautiful place to finish. So, uh, again, we've been, uh, speaking with, uh, professor Justin Bonanno, professor of communications and, uh, also helps with, um, anyway, mentoring a bunch of students at Mm -hmm. Ave and teaching many. We're so grateful to have you here with us and appreciate just even, uh, just kind of maybe knowing a little bit more about Walker Percy, one of the great 20th century, Catholic converts and really apologists as as well as a novelist and philosophical essayist. So thank you again for your work and thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.